Great. So we, we're doing this series. It's called Let's Talk About Sex. And uh, we have third week in. And on the first week, uh, we talked about some stuff. And on the second week, yeah, last week, we talked about some more stuff. And um, this week, we're talking about how to stay married and like it. Or get married and like it. And stay married and like it. Because there's a lot of people who are married who don't like it. Last week, we talked about being single, actually. And um, we said really clearly, Jill Rowe spoke, that um, the goal of life isn't to get married. You know, I often say to people who kind of uh, get round people and start worrying that, you know, you're 30-something and you're not married. Oh, you really ought to get your act together. We've talked about that and our... A number of t- in a number of ways over the last few weeks. But I often say to them, you know, that was Mother Teresa's problem, wasn't it? I mean, you know, she only started institutions, hospitals and care homes in 197 countries. Just imagine what she could have done if she'd have been married. It's, it's ridiculous, isn't it? This view that marriage is everything and the goal. So we talked about being single uh, last week. On the first week, what we actually uh, talked about was how to choose a life partner if you're the kind of person who wants to be choosing or finding a life partner, always understanding that besides Mother Teresa and singleness, there is just that one other minor example, Jesus himself. So we can end up looking in the wrong direction if we think that marriage is the be-all and end-all of life. But if you are in a relationship... How do you stay in that relationship and make it happy and make it fulfilled? How do you like it long term? And so my talk falls into two bits. First of all, we're going to do a little bit of theology. And then we're going to do a little bit of practical stuff. Not that theology and practical stuff are different. It's just that the theological roots are going to kind of push on into some practical outcomes. Some people say, I don't do theology, I just do practical stuff. Here's the bad news. You will always be stuck in your Christian life and you will be available to be tricked and conned by anybody who comes along with a passing Bible verse. The number of Christians I meet who've learned random verses from random people and actually live under the depression that those verses impose on them. They've learned that this is true and that's true and live their whole life with a kind of sense of guilt as a result of that. So we all do theology. The question is, do we do good theology or bad theology? Terry just read to us, and the sting of what Terry said was this. At the end of that little reading about uh, divorce, as Terry said, Jesus replies to the Pharisees, who were talking to him and asking him questions. And he says this, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So Jesus is clear. There's only one way out of marriage if you're in marriage, And it's sexual immorality. I said a couple of weeks ago, it's worth repeating the story, that when I was first a minister in a church in Kent, a woman came to see me 
It was the first time that anybody had ever really talked to me about something serious to do with marriage, I think. And this woman came to see me crying and then asked me to pray for her. And I said, what can I pray for you? And this was her request. You know, a lot of people pray that it would be summit sunny for their birthday party or for their trip to the beach or, you know, etc., etc. But this was the most unusual prayer request ever. This is it. She sat there and she said, I can't tell anybody else about this, but will you promise to pray for me, with me, that my husband commits adultery? I want him to commit adultery Would you pray about it with me? That's an unusual one, isn't it? So I teased out and I said, so why are you praying that he commits adultery? And she said, well, don't you know? Don't you know what Jesus said? I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, or wife divorcing her husband, I guess, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. But if he... If he commits adultery, then I'll be able to divorce him. She'd been taught that it was only sexual immorality that could end a marriage. He'd been cruel to her for years and years and years and years in a really serious, abusive way. But the only advice she'd ever got is that she ought to stick with him. So is that what Jesus is saying here? It kind of looks like it, doesn't it? But that's the problem with picking Bible verses out of the blue and applying them. And I have to tell you that the church has picked this Bible verse out of the blue and applied it to all sorts of people and really screwed people's lives up historically as a result. But take a look at this verse. This is from the Old Testament. From Deuteronomy chapter 24, well actually it's verses, uh, verses 1 to 4. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then the first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 to 4. There's a whole load of things about that um, little passage uh, that is worth noting. This is the theology bit, and we're going to get practical. Firstly, divorce was part of Jewish society. Secondly, divorce certificates were issued. But can you spot the difference between those divorce certificates and ours? What's the difference? You don't have to answer out loud. What's the difference between the divorce certificate mentioned there, Jesus talks about them in the same way, and divorce certificates in our society? The difference is this. The husband issues the divorce certificate. In our society, it's the state that does it. You go to court, 
and you get a divorce, and if you get a divorce, the state issues you a divorce certificate. In this case, it's the man who has to give his wife a divorce certificate. Christians often worry, you may have met some, that if you do get divorced, you can't get remarried. Yeah? The only reason for being given a divorce certificate in the Old Testament was so that you could get remarried. And you were given a divorce certificate by your husband. Why was that? Because in marriage in these days, the wife's family paid a dowry to the husband's family to be married. If the wife uh, was leaving that marriage, the husband writes the certificate of divorce, which she can then carry with her, because it basically says to any other prospective man who steps into her life, this woman is free. Her family doesn't owe me anything. There's no price to pay. If you marry her, you won't be saddled with some big bill back to my family. The only reason for ever obtaining a divorce certificate was to free a woman to marry again. That's a big thing, isn't it? To take on board. And it's not even really the depth of the whole thing. You see, it's this passage that Jesus is arguing about with the Pharisees that come to see him. The story that Terry read to us isn't about Jesus' general views on divorce. It's about his view of this passage. Because when Jesus was around, one of the hottest issues in society was this passage. We know this because it's written about in so many other documents outside uh, of the New Testament. We know this is what everyone was talking about. Jesus is in debate, said uh, said. Um, <laughs> God, my brain goes. Uh, Jesus is in debate, said Terry, with the Pharisees. The Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, so, is it right for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus says, no, only in the case of sexual immorality. What they were arguing about was this verse, and Jesus knew it. Though we think that in the New Testament there are Pharisees, because we just read about Pharisees, don't we? There were actually two parties of Pharisees. Now, the big hot potato for us politically is in or out. Europe or independence. Michael Gove or David Cameron, etc., etc., etc. Everyone's talking about it. The point is there were two groups of Pharisees. One was more conservative and one was more liberal. And they were always warring with each other. And Jesus normally sided with the more liberal group of Pharisees. They followed a man who was called Hillel. He was their leader and they had a liberal attitude to most things. Jesus, like I just said, normally agreed with them. But on this occasion, he does an extraordinary thing. The liberal guys come to Jesus and says, is it all right for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Unusually, Jesus sides with the conservative Pharisees. And he says, no, 
only for sexual immorality. You see, this verse, these verses, they've been argued about because it says at the beginning, if a man marries a woman and he becomes and she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he can divorce her if he writes a, a divorce certificate. And they'd argued about what was something that might displease him and what was something that he might find indecent. And the liberal Pharisee said, well, you know, if she upsets you, if she doesn't look as good as she used to, if she doesn't cook as well, if she's not a good mother, if she doesn't work as hard, if you find her annoying and nagging, you can get rid of her. And the conservative Pharisees said, no, it's only in the case of sexual immorality. And so what Jesus is doing is he's saying, no, you guys, you can't treat your wives just like cattle, just like something you own. You have a responsibility to them. But the important thing is this isn't Jesus' whole attitude to divorce. It's only his attitude to this issue. How do we know that? Because of this. Exodus chapter 21, verse 10 and 11. If a man marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights, sex. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is free to go without any payment of money, any paying off of the dowry. There's no sexual immorality here. There's no adultery here. In actual fact, our marriage vows, I take you to be my lawful wedded wife, to have and to hold, for better and worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and health, to love and to cherish till we are parted by death, stem from this great principle in Exodus. Can you see what it's saying? It's saying that the essence of a marriage is this, food, clothing, and sexual intimacy. In other words, security. Love, shelter. And if someone neglects these things, these three things, and does not provide them, the wife is free to walk away. Even back in Exodus, that set out. So Jesus knows that. What he's talking about in Matthew 19 is his attitude to this particular debate amongst these Pharisees. Now, the interesting thing about this as well, several things to say about this, is you know you'll meet people who say all the time, they say it to me because of our uh, attitude, um, because of what we believe the Bible says about the inclusion of LGBT communities and people. They say, it's important that we stick to what the Bible says about marriage. You've heard that. We've got to teach the Bible and what the Bible says about marriage. Well, look at what it says here. And look at what it says there. If a man marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food. This is about polygamy. 
So you need to say, when people say, we have to stick to what the Bible says about marriage, you need to say, is that the polygamous sort of marriage? Do you think we should be sticking to that? In other words, what I'm saying to you is what I say to you often. The Bible is a library and it's more complicated to understand than just quote texts off the top with no context and build whole theories and doctrines out of them. What this passage is saying is that marriage is about ongoing support and commitment to one another. Here's a New Testament passage from Paul writing to the Corinthians. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. You may have heard this said before, this text before, it's well known. Here's a really interesting thing. Paul isn't writing about marriage. Comes at the end of his his second letter to the Corinthians and he's writing about life generally. I mean, it applies to marriage, but it applies to business. It applies to anything you're doing. What he's saying is not, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers or else God will get you. It's not like that at all. He's saying, listen, here's a bit of common sense. Don't end up in relationships with people who've got values that are opposed to you. If you end up in a relationship just because you're taken away by the moment with someone or some people whose values and ethics and ethos are not yours, actually, you're just headed for the rocks. Don't get into bed with someone who doesn't share your values, either physically, either literally or metaphorically. Don't get involved in relationships that you, that you superficially engage with without thinking through the long-term consequences. But what if somebody ends up in a relationship with someone who's headed in another direction? Here's another piece of advice from Paul to the same church. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, you can't just go divorcing her. Oh, now I've got some different values, so I'm not interested in you anymore. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Notice what else it says there. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord, Now, there are some people who tell you that every single word of the Bible is true in the same way as every other single word of the Bible. And we've explored very often that the Bible seems to be saying different things in different places. But Paul says here, this is me, not the Lord. It's clear. This is the way I think about it. And why is Paul... Due to technical difficulties, we were unable to record part of this sermon... You will now be taken six minutes on in the sermon. Thank you. And it's worth checking it out and thinking it through because relationships based on physical attraction alone really won't get you there. The second thing I think that um, Connie and I have learned, and I've learned through my tar, my, my um, job, is this. It really does matter if your 
boyfriend, girlfriend gets on with your mum. It really does matter. It's no good saying, hey, it doesn't matter, you know, they, they don't, it, it matters a lot. And it's going to matter a lot for a long time to come. I'm not saying that you shouldn't get married if there's a tension. I am saying that that tension will impact your marriage week in, week out, year in, year out. So how are you going to deal with it? I am saying that it really does matter if you've got significant differences. That's why Paul says, like, don't be yoked together with an unbeliever. Like, what a dumb thing to do. What a dumb thing to enter a relationship where the core things about who you are aren't shared by the person you're going to journey through life with. You're asking for something impossible. It really does matter. Because you're perhaps going to raise kids. And all these things, like I say, oh, it doesn't really matter. We have different values. All of those things are going to matter hugely as you journey down that road. The problem, as I said on the first week uh, we began uh, this little series, is this. When you fall in love, that's exactly what's happened. You've become drunk on love. You've become intoxicated. What we all have to do is sober up. It's better to sober up before you get married than after you get married. It's better to find time to sober up and think hard about these issues. There's always a way forward. If you're planning to marry someone whose father is an alcoholic and has been through their childhood, it is going to impact your relationship, marriage. It is going to impact it. I'm not saying don't get married. I'm saying, don't say, oh, it makes no difference. It's going to make a lot of difference. Think about these things. The next one is this. Unrealistic expectations. Unrealistic expectations. Well, she's got her flaws at the moment, but she'll sort them out. Trust me, it doesn't work that way. He's got his flaws at the moment, but I'm sure when we're together, it'll all for more time. It'll all be easier. No, it won't. It'll be harder. Be ready for change. And embrace change. When Corny and I got married, we were 24. We had no responsibilities, actually. But then we had four kids. It changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. So what are your attitudes to this? And what are your potential partner's attitudes to this? And how hard are they prepared to work at all those things? And just as I was getting used to the hard work of having four kids, they all grew up and left home. And then you're back to this, you know, this empty nest syndrome. And your relationship has become all about these kids and looking after them. And every conversation is about where you're taking them, where you're not taking them, how they're doing at school, how they're not doing at school, how you're going to make everything work. Every conversation is a conversation about bikes or, you know, sport or whatever it is with your kids. And then all of a sudden they're gone and it's just the two of you on your own. 
How are you going to deal with that? You know how many people get divorced when their children leave home. Because actually all the activity has masked the fact that they didn't have anything in common. It's just they got married at the beginning when they were intoxicated by love, drunk on love, had a first child and others, all the children take over and fill the gap and the void and then they go and the gap and the void is there. Pay attention to these things. They really matter. The next thing I've learned, I suppose Cornelia's learned it, is this. To accept what you can't change. Because the thing is, I don't mean this unkindly about Cornelia, who I love dearly. I can't actually change her. I've tried. You know, it just really doesn't work at all. And I know she's tried to change me, and it's impossible. Because basically, though I am working to change, I am who I am at core. I'm not going to turn into a quiet person and Cornelia is not going to turn into a big loud person who stands on the front and does loads of speaking. We are different and they're two superficial ways. But you're marrying someone who is different and they will remain different to you. So accept what you can't change. Pre-marriage counselling is a really important thing, I think, to sit down and talk things through with a good friend. In our society, of course, because we chucked out arranged marriage and we believe in autonomy and we believe in individuality, you have no idea, in fact you do have an idea, how many people get themselves into huge scrapes. How many people do you know who are planning to get married to someone or they just got engaged And all their mates sit down a pub and go, I can't believe she's got engaged to him. It's going to be a disaster. Have you ever been involved in one of those conversations? Everybody knows what a disaster it's going to be except the one person it really matters to. Because no one's got the courage to tell them. And because, more importantly, they have never given anyone the permission to tell them. Don't be that person. Don't find yourself in that position where 15 years down the agonizing road of trying to make something that work that never would work, you sit and you cry your eyes out with your best friend and they say, yeah, we all knew this would happen 15 years back. Be smart enough to seek advice. Be smart enough not to be guided by by your brain and not just by the thing between your legs. That's basically what it amounts to. Be smart enough uh, to do that. But it's not just pre-marriage counselling, informally from your friends, seeking their advice, in just the same way as you would do about any big decision, which is, of course, always smaller than this one. I mean, which house you move into, you know, which car you get, which job you get, all those things we talk to our friends about all pale into total insignificance compared to this kind of decision. But it's about marital counselling, not just pre-marriage, but ongoing. You see, if you are a teacher, and I know some of you are here, or if you are a nurse, or if you are a doctor, or whatever it is, you do CPD, Continuous Professional Development. 
You don't train as a teacher and go, oh, I've trained as a teacher. I just rattle out that lesson for the next 40 years. You've got to constantly learn and grow and change. And to keep a marriage alive, a relationship alive, you've got to constantly learn and, and grow and change. I think that marriage is a covenant. I'm, I'm, uh, there are several couples in the church, um, both heterosexual couples and same-sex couples who are planning to get married over the next year, um, next few months, next year. And so I sit regularly with um, couples in the two congregations who are going to get married, which is a wonderful thing. And um, there's one couple that are going to get married, and they have purposely, I'm not saying this is the way that anyone else should do it, but they've purposely chosen to get married in a registry office not far from here, a couple of days before, and then their marriage is going to be here, and um, their reception is actually going to be on the farm and back here. But they've chosen to get married in a reception uh, office and then come for a community blessing. Because they want to say, we know that the marriage is a kind of civil bit, it's legal. Do you know, in the end, it's about who gets what if one of us dies, isn't it? That's what getting married in the eyes of the law is. But what we think is really important is making some commitments and pledges before, in front of God and our community and our church. And we'd like to navigate between those two things, not blur them together in some way. Now, I'm not saying that's the way to do it. Some people do do that. Most don't. The important thing to know is that there are those two responsibilities one's a kind of civil contract but the other is a deep covenant that you make together um back a year and a half ago um uh, i think most of you know here um corny um was really ill um she had breast cancer across not last summer but the summer before and um that was really hard for her and really hard for me and really hard for our children and um, anyway the point was this because of all the changes happening to this building here we had several marriage services that we did at St John's Church you know we I just asked Giles who's the vicar whether we could use the church and he agreed and at Corny was in hospital having the fourth of she had four operations And I stood, as she was in hospital, not knowing what the outcome of all these things would be at that time, I stood in front of this congregation, no doubt some of you were in it, and I said to the groom, repeat after me, I will say, do you take this woman to be your lawful wedded wife, to have and to hold, for rich or poor, in sickness and health, to love and to cherish, etc., until you are parted by death. And he kind of smiled back and said, yes, 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 yes. And I thought inside, you have no idea what it is you're signing up for. But you are signing up for this. You are signing up for this. Marriage is a sacred covenant. 
as you can see from those passages in Exodus, it's been held through countless thousands of years. And it's always been about what that Exodus passage talks about. It's not just about being sexually faithful. It's much more than that, as Exodus points out. It's about providing warmth and shelter and love and security and cherishing and nourishing. And even back in the middle of the Bronze Age, because that's when Exodus was written, that Exodus passage says to a wife, if you are not receiving these things, walk away. Because that's no marriage. We're going to close. We're going to close simply by praying together and then we're going to come, um, we're going to sing a song. Flick will lead us in the song as to take out evening offering. But as I close, let me say this. I don't know if you know that the first miracle Jesus ever um, did, according to John, John's Gospel, he only has seven miracles John's gospel, in John's Gospel. He calls them signs, not miracles. But the first ever sign was when Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding at Cana. You all know the story? Now, that story is a fantastic one. And I could bore you for a long time about some of the incredible things that it's really about. But here's one of them, just in a sentence. They're at a wedding. The wine's run out. It's all gone dry. They're left with water. All of the sparkle's gone. It's plain. The zest has gone out of the party. It's just water. And they go to Jesus in the mundaneness and the monotony of this wedding party without alcohol. And Jesus turns the ordinary water of life into wine. What do I gather from that? Invite Jesus to your party. Jesus makes a party live. Invite Jesus to your life in such a way that the decisions you choose to take about sex and the decisions you choose to take about partners, life partners, are ones that Jesus is at the center of, not left out of. Why do I say that? Because Jesus turns the boring old ditch water of life into a party. And to walk this way without him is simply to leave yourself vulnerable to huge disappointment and crushing defeat. Let's pray.